Thanks for taking the time to listen to our latest content here on the Blood Red channel. Guy here with just a quick message. Do you want the very latest Liverpool FC news directly into your inbox? Well then sign up to our daily LFC newsletter, which will bring you the breaking news and big events from around Anfield. To subscribe, just go to bit.ly forward slash LFC newsletter. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash LFC newsletter. Or click the link in the description of this podcast and pop in your email address. It really is that simple. That link once more bit.ly forward slash LFC newsletter. Well, thanks for your time and on with the podcast. This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Just six days on from the stalemate at Stamford Bridge, all that stood between Liverpool and a place in the Champions League final were league champions Chelsea. I'm Guy Clark. This is the road to Istanbul as we document the Reds' historical journey to the 2005 Champions League final. So all eyes on Anfield. The stage was set, the subplots written. Now it was all time for the action. Join us as we look back on one of Liverpool's most talked about European victories. Still 15 years on, Luis Garcia's goal in front of the cop is stuff not only of legend, but in some quarters, controversy. Alongside me on the line to delve back through the archives is our resident red, Dan Kay. Dan, what a game we've got to look into. It certainly is, Guy. <clears throat> yeah, we've been we've been doing this road to Istanbul since September, <clears throat> and this is the one that I've been looking forward to more than any, possibly even more than the final. You know, it was such a special night, and I think any Liverpool supporter or any football supporter really that was lucky enough to be there or, or watch it, it holds a very very special place in in our hearts and our memories. And you know, for me at the time, it was the greatest day of my Liverpool supporting life. Although that would obviously get usurped a few weeks later. No, I have to say, I feel the exact same about this game. We spoke the Juventus home leg game. That was the one for me where I started thinking Liverpool could win this competition. This was the game that I have to say is really etched in my memory and and mind of everything building up to it. I confess straight from the off, I grew up in a household where my brother, just two years older, was a mad Chelsea fan. So I was sat on the sofa cheering the Reds on, wanting to see them just dump my brother's side out of the the tournament because they'd won the Premier League. They were all conquering at the time. And, well, it was a game that I suppose the fuse was lit right from the off. It was, and and really, you know, the the narrative of the whole season had seemingly been been building to this point. You know, both clubs changing managers the previous summer. Mourinho could have ended up at Anfield and Benitez at Stamford Bridge, but obviously it went the other way. Um, Chelsea had those two narrow victories, 1-0 victories by goals from Joe Cole each time in the September at Stamford Bridge and New Year's Day at Anfield, which also saw Xabi Alonso get his leg broke by Frank Lampard. Then at the uh, the end of February, there was the League Cup final in Cardiff, um, which Chelsea narrowly won. Uh, Steven Gerrard's own goal, Mourinho shushing. You know, the whole background to this, of course, as well, was um, Chelsea's pursuit of Gerrard, which at the time, you know, we didn't know if it was paper talk or if it was real. But obviously, 15 years on, because of, you know, Gerrard's spoken about it, we do know it was it was a real thing. It was a genuine possibility that that could happen. And then literally three days before, you know, the, 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 the weekend in between the two legs, Chelsea clinched the league with a 2-0 win at Bolton, their first league title for 50 years since 1955. And you know, Liverpool were enormous underdogs. I think, as we said last week, was it thir- the points gap at this stage was 33. And I think by the end of the season, it was 37. 
so in many ways, you know, to the you know to the uh, to the outsiders, Liverpool were to some degree lambs to the slaughter. But we never felt it that way. Um, four years before, we'd had a second leg semi against Barcelona with a similar kind of background, a nil-nil away draw. And even though Chelsea were a great side, um, well, it's certainly a very, very good side and, you know, and worthy champions, absolutely strolled to the league. There was a feeling that this was Anfield, this was a European night, this was our manner. There was all kind of like the empire strikes back, you know, Chelsea with their new money and new regime and... and you know the, the new kids on the block, but there was this feeling in the air, and and one thing I'll, that I'll never forget: knocking off work, and we, me and some of my pals made a little bit of a habit of the the home games. Certainly after Christmas in this year, of we'd meet up, we'd meet up in town in Derby Square, I think it was, and have a couple of bevies there, and and then obviously head up to the ground and have have, have a couple by the ground. And I always remember getting out the cab, um, probably at least half a mile from the ground on kind of like Sleepers Hill. Maybe quarter past six, so a good hour and 20, 30 minutes before kickoff. And you could hear the crowd, you could hear the atmosphere, you could taste it in the air. And you just knew as someone that had been going to the match for just over 20 years by this point, 84 my first game, you just knew in your bones this was different. This was something that we'd never experienced before. And um, it was, you know, I get goosebumps now, even now just thinking about it. And I was going to say on, on that point, exactly. Chelsea had done so much in the league. I think this was the year that they recorded 95 points in the Premier League. It was just a year after Arsenal, of course, had, had gone through a season unbeaten and only got 90, or I say only got 90 points, had got 90 points. Chelsea had topped that. I think they finished the season only conceding 15 goals. But in this competition in Europe, especially going into to Liverpool's backyard at Anfield, there was that feeling of, all right, they'd got to the Champions League semi-finals against Monaco the year before, but this was untested ground mm. for this crop that had been put together. Whereas Liverpool, it was all about that know-how and experience, I suppose, even within the fabric of the club, the the fan base and, of course, the stadium. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as we said just before, you know, there was, you know, some of this team had won a European trophy, the UEFA Cup, four years beforehand, but but not, not a, probably maybe half, if that, maybe less. Um, but it, it's you, it's something me and some of my pals have been discussing, you know, quite recently actually. Because obviously, there's various clubs with new money that have emerged onto the football landscape in recent years, the likes of Paris Saint Germain, Manchester City. But if you look at the you know the the Champions League winners over the in the modern era, there's not many new winners. Even with the you know the teams that have become dominant in their own country, have all of all the resource, all the finance. There's something about the European Cup. That is unique and it takes, you know, it, it's not just about having the best players or the most money. There's something indefinable about it that, that, and I think that was one of the biggest cards Liverpool had up their sleeves. The fact that it was Anfield, the fact that there was such a heritage and a tradition of European success in Liverpool. I always remember a fantastic piece that I read on a, you know, back, back in the mid-2000 football forums and message boards were, were quite a big deal, obviously, before the, the advent of, of social media. And it was a post on the, the Red All Over the Land Liverpool Forum. And I'm sure I've shared it a couple of times since on the anniversary. And I'll try and dig it out and do it again this time. Because it's one of the most evocative, powerful pieces of football writing that I've ever read. I'm sure it was posted the night before the game. And it was about football stadiums and empty football stadiums. And about how um, Chelsea would be training, obviously, at Anfield the night before, as is customary for a European match. But basically on the lines of, you know, the, the, the ghosts and the spirits of Liverpool past will be there watching and waiting for them. And I remember reading it the night before and I was ready to kind of bounce off a wall, 
even though I still had to try and go to sleep and go to work the next day before actually going to the match. And yeah, there's, his history tells you, you know, it is the most prestigious football club t- trophy there is to win. And it doesn't come easily. And, you know, obviously we're all still a little bit sad that Liverpool dip weren't able, you know, aren't going to be retaining it this year after Atletico Madrid's um, two-legged victory in the last 16. But in many ways, the fact that, you know, and I think because Liverpool have been so great this, you know, over the last two or three years, so all-conquering, maybe there was almost kind of like an assumption that, well, not quite being enough to turn up to win it, but we've got a great chance of doing it again. And maybe the fact that, you know, and let's be honest, Liverpool played pretty well <clears throat> over 210 minutes against Atletico, but yeah, Atletico played the game they needed to play and, and did what they did, needed to do to win and fair play to them. But in some degree, maybe to some degree, what happened with Atletico maybe just puts in greater context what an achievement it was for Liverpool to win it last year on the back of going to Kiev the year before. <clears throat> and of course, what an incredible achievement it was to win it in 2005 when, let's be honest, this, this Liverpool team under Rafa Benitez was not really fit to hold a candle to the current crop. But they beat Juventus, they beat Chelsea and they beat AC Milan and they won it on merit and, and no one can ever take that away from them. No, great point you make on, I suppose, the prestige and sort of sides who have gone on and won European Cups. I suppose, really, Atletico Madrid are, in the in the current era, the only side who, without that European pedigree, have been able to get late into the tournament on a number of occasions. Of course, they have reached a, f- a few finals as well. But yeah. looking back on, on this match, and we'll, we'll now get into, obviously, the game and everything itself. But before that, the team news for the game. We know Xabi Alonso is not going to be playing. And in comes mm. Deep Mahaman. He is one of three Liverpool players ahead of the game who knows a booking will see him out of the final. Steve Finnan and Jamie Carragher, the others. Deep Mahaman, though, that. was probably the best guy to be able to bring into a situation like this, wasn't he? Haman, absolutely. You know, he was made to measure for this kind of game and also made to measure for, for the way Rafa Benitez liked to play. And, you know, obviously we'll maybe talk about this in a bit more detail in a couple of weeks' time, but... I remember being absolutely staggered getting into the ground in Istanbul to learn that he'd been dropped because it just seemed to go against every... You know, this was towards the end of Rafa's first year, but it just seemed to go against everything we knew about his philosophy on football, the way he set the team up. But yeah, for, for, for this kind of match, Haman, the defensive linchpin, um, who uh, took a little bit of a while to settle when he came in under... Uh, Gerard Houllier a few years before, but it already absolutely proved his worth. And um, notably in this competition, you know, I think as we talked about a couple of rounds ago with Leverkusen, uh, it was an extraordinary decision when uh, Houllier took him off with the game in the balance in the second leg of the quarterfinal in 2 the Smeetra, and it cost Liverpool that day. Um, so he was a, fa- a fantastic player to bring in. The, well, obviously, the, the loss of Alonso was a big concern because, you know, Nil nil being a good result as it is away from home. Liverpool, you know, we knew. Not, I don't think I expected Liverpool to play massively open and play free flowing football against Chelsea. But Alonso, you know, was a class passer of the ball. You know, you know, alongside Gerard, you know, the different players, the best passer of the ball in that team. So it was kind of you know, the, the the Lord gives with one hand and takes away with the other. We lost Alonso, but at least Didier Man was back. Um, but obviously, as you pointed out, that I, I, I may have been aware at the time. Obviously, it's a long time ago now, but to have three players of that ilk on uh, a yellow card was the kind of tightrope that I guess it could, it, it's part and parcel of European football. I mean, I, I saw it a couple of day, um, couple of days ago. Uh, obviously, we're coming to the anniversary of the, the incredible semi-final against Barcelona last year, and for me, one of the 
the all-time great Liverpool tackles was shortly after Origi made it 1-0 and Fabinho, who's possibly our best holding player since Haman, maybe with Mascherano, put just an absolutely crunching tackle in on Luis Suarez that you know, man-balled a lot. It was, it was fantastic. I remember cheering it like a goal in the ground. But, I mean, but he got booked for it straight away. And this was maybe 10 minutes into the game. And I remember thinking at the time, and seeing it back on the telly, the commentator remarks on it as well, well, he's now got to walk this tightrope for 80-plus 80, 80 minutes. And particularly the way, the, the role he plays in the team, the way, you know, protecting the back four when you know you've got to have to do a lot of tackling. It, you know, it put Fabinho's performance that night into great into great context. And I think, you know, uh, I can think of a number, you know, a, a number of other occasions when players have had to kind of really carry that burden of responsibility of knowing that one mistimed tackle means that you, you're letting your teammates down and putting them down to 10 men. Uh, so... The, the, you know, the, these were all the things that, that Liverpool had to manage on the night, um, but they managed it perfectly. And obviously, you know, the events conspired. And I mean, if the, if the first goal had come later in the game, who knows how it might have how it might have played out? But I've always had this kind of theory that, particularly for these kind of nights, and we've seen a few examples of it in recent years, Barcelona as well. When when the crowd is already quite febrile and massively up for it, if you can get an early goal. It's just like lighting a it's like, a, like like lighting a fire under it. It just takes it up to another level, and obviously the fact that the goal, um, as as I'm sure we'll get into in a moment, um, was within the first four minutes, just had that added impact. It took the atmosphere up another level, and I think made it even harder for Chelsea. Although they did, of course, have the best part of ninety minutes to score one goal, which may well have been enough to take them through because you know. There was no guarantee that Liverpool would have got a second. No, certainly. Let's get into the goal then. A goal that has been spoken about perhaps more than many other over the last 15 <laughs> years. Moved down the left-hand side. Steven Gerrard, 20 yards or so from goal on the half turn. Stabs it with the out boot of his, outside of his, his right boot. Chips it through Sublime ball. for Milan Barros. I was going to ask you about the pass. It, it, I think it's something oh. that's often overlooked. Barros goes for it. Check clatters him. Barros is looking round for where the ball's going to drop and all of a sudden, first on the scene is Luis Garcia to stab it goalwards, deflects off John Terry, bounces goalwards and William Gallas clears it away. But goal given, the ball of course crossed the line, didn't it, Dan? Let's have it right, Guy. Come on, it was miles in. Miles over the line. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Gallas pulling himself you know from out of out of the back of the net to, to kick the ball away. Um, the more... I mean, obviously, nowadays we've got goal line technology. And, you know, round about the time or shortly afterwards, you know, there were various analyses of it done. But I, I think a lot of Liverpool fans would agree that the fact that it was disputed, the fact that it might not have been over the line, just makes it even better from our point of view because it was Mourinho, because it was Chelsea, because of, the, because of all their carry-on. It just makes it even sweeter from our point of view. But it was, it, as a piece of football... As a piece of dramatic football, it's almost like a piece of art. As you said, I think Risa has the ball on the left, lays it into Gerard, maybe 10 yards outside the box. The ball is magnificent. And as you say, is quite often overlooked. He's kind of leaning back and just dinks it, this perfect little lobbed through ball over the top of the defence into space. Barros runs through. Czech comes out and clatters him. And uh, as you say, Luis Garcia, following up the play, as you're always taught to do as a school kid, uh, is first on the scene. Great opportunism and, and really showed his, you know, that knack, that kind of scent 
of of how he could just sniff out an opportunity, sniff out a goal. And he got he, he caressed it towards the goal line. You know, Gallas and I think maybe Cavallio, and the defenders racing back there. Gallas gets his foot gets his foot on it and hooks it away. And then there was this kind of glorious three, four, five seconds of of uncertainty. And I remember just kind of grabbing. I think it was about four or five of us, or, or, our mates all together. And I remember just grabbing my mate, kind of like by the scruff of his neck, and just screaming at it. It's a something goal. It's a something goal. As if it was down to him to give the decision. And I think it was fair to say he was hoping it would be given as much as I did. And nobody kind of really knew what was going to happen. And then, you know, you're looking at the lines and you're looking at the referee. And I think I just saw the referee kind of point it back to the centre circle. And you realised that it, that it had been given. And, you know, the release of emotion, intensity, joy that, you know, we got our noses in front. You know, we'd seen, you know, nine months of Rafa Benitez football now. We knew that, all right, it was still very much a work in progress. But if this team was able to get their noses in front, as they proved at Sanford Bridge the week before, as they proved in Turin a few weeks before that, they could be very, very obdurate and difficult to, to break down. Um, you know, another thing I think it is worth mentioning as well, I think anyone that could seen it will be able to relate to whether they're at the match or not. Obviously, I've recorded it and have watched it countless times uh, since then. But... The, the 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 camera work as you know they they follow Garcia and they follow him as he runs over towards the, the Kemlin Road stand and and then he gets mobbed by the players and then the camera goes back on the ground that goes back on the on on the crowd I think it's at the cop end and the camera is literally shaking you know it's not a very clear picture but the camera is shaking it and maybe that you know it's it's impossible to describe the visceral nature of a moment like that unless you're actually in it but. Just the fact that you know you see that camera shaking every time that goal is shown is a lovely little reminder of just what an astonishing, unforgettable moment it was. Yeah, there were forty-two thousand in inside Anfield that night. I'm sure four hundred thousand have claimed that they were there for that goal. As you say, really one of those moments to be there. You alluded to it. Obviously, in the modern day, that goal goes in. It would be VAR. It would be goal line technology. All of that would be checked. But I suppose it just adds to the nostalgia that we have. Looking back on this 15 years ago, that it's one of those moments that it it, it doesn't matter if the ball was over the line. The goal was given. It, it just adds to the whole drama of the occasion. And I suppose... It, in many ways, befitting of a player like Luis Garcia to score it, because we've spoken about him during this run, during the, the back end of the season, the knockout phase that he played such a vital role in. But fair to say he was somewhat of a, a frustrating player, perhaps some somewhat of a, a footballing maverick. He could turn it on at certain times and you'd be annoyed that he didn't do it all of the time. Yet before we had wall-to-wall coverage of football every game that you could find a stream from somewhere around the world to watch, he was a guy who could just... This wasn't obviously a, a, a magical moment in terms of the goal against Juventus at home, but it, it is a magical and such a treasured memory that obviously Luis Garcia has that goal. Yeah, it, well, he, you know, he's, he's written forever into Liverpool folklore. I mean, his Liverpool career was quite short, really. Only two and a half seasons. He, he did his knee ligaments in a, a 6-3 League Cup to Ar- defeat to Arsenal in January 2007. Never played for the club again. And I think, did he go back to Spain and play a couple of games? I think his playing career was pretty much over by the time it was 30. Um, but, you know, he, he achieved more in a, you know, a short space of time with Liverpool and kind of, you know, wrote himself into people's hearts and, and minds more than some players who will have spent two, three times the, uh, as long as he did on the pitch. And 
I think the you know the the reason why he was able to be involved in in these kind of moments of such significance was because of his footballing intelligence. Um, you know, you, you're right in what you say that he was he could be a very frustrating figure, and you know certainly certainly in that first half of the season, quite a divisive one because he looked very lightweight, and you know we'd seen a fair few foreign players come in that you know he'd have a few nicey flicks and turns, but you know in the immortal phrase they wouldn't really fancy a wet Wednesday night in Stoke or Wigan. <laughs> For, for better alliteration, um, but as as this as the second half of this season wore on, he really did began to show his worth. Not and and for me, not just in terms of the the important goals he scored. Obviously, there was the two in Leverkusen, uh, the Juventus goal. Obviously, this one. Um, the, 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 I can't remember if I mentioned this on one of these pods before, but the game to me where I really I, there was a game against Southampton in the January when we lost two 0 Peter Crouch scored, and he was hopeless that day. And I remember, I didn't go to the game, but I remember having a chat with a mate afterwards via text. And I remember making a number of disparaging remarks regarding Garcia and the fact that I didn't really think he was going to be, he was up to it or was going to contribute much for us. In the Towards the end of March, I'm sure it was the weekend after we drawn Juventus at the quarterfinals, there was the, the Anfield return derby against Everton. Everton had been above us in the league all season in fourth place. We were desperately trying to claw them back. We'd lost at Goodison in December, so it was absolutely critical to do that. Uh, you know, to, to turn them over, and to me, that was the day that Garcia really showed his merit because not just did he score, the, you know, a vital second goal in, in a match that was ultimately won two one after Steven Gerrard got the, the opener from a free kick, and it was a, it wasn't a dissimilar goal to this Chelsea one in that he was able to score the goal because of his his footballing nous in following up the play. Morientes' shot hit the bar, and whereas some players might have been on his heels on the heels, he was the man following it up. And was perfectly placed to nod into an empty net after after Nigel Martin spilled it. But the reason why I, I always look back on this game is that, as is sometimes the case when derby matches aren't going Everton's way, their tackling tends to go on the rather agricultural side. And basically, by half time, Liverpool had to make three substitutions because three players had, had to go off injured. And and then Garcia just before half time also picked up a knock and looked like he couldn't continue. But he but he came back out for the second half. You know, at times he was almost a passenger, but he kind of you know hobbled around and, and was an extra body, and Liverpool won the match. And even if Everton, even if Everton finished, you know, finished the season in fourth and Liverpool in fifth, I always look back on that derby as a very important moment in that season. I remember when the when the match finished, Benitez, who you know, was let's be honest, was never the most demonstrative of managers, came to the centre circle with the players and applauded the crowd. As I say, I'm, I'm sure it was the it was the weekend after the Leverkusen second leg, and we just drawn Juventus. So it just gave a feeling of momentum, of hope that all right, we've we've beaten the list. Liverpool are always going to be happy to beat Evan, whatever the circumstances. But it was a really important game that, and you know, that was the day that I think Garcia started to show that he, he you know, he, he started to show his metal. That you know, he might not be the biggest, he might not be the strongest, but he's got a big heart, and uh, you know, and that's something I think Liverpool supporters will always respond to. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the managers there because when the goal goes in, Benitez, of course, what was soon becoming his, his trademark, he's just sat make, <laughs> making notes on the bench whilst the, pa- the the camera panned across to Jose Mourinho sat furiously chomping away at his chewing gum. He wasn't trying to shush Anfield like he'd done to the Liverpool fans down in Cardiff he's in the League Cup final. <laughs> exactly, he certainly would have done. And I suppose this is where Anfield then comes into its own and really does be that that 12th man and help Liverpool out because the rest of the game I'm sure you were probably as the clock wound down beginning to get more and more crippled by anxiety and and fear of because you knew that should Chelsea score one goal the whole tie changes they'd go through on away goals 
Well, exactly. I mean, you know, there's two years. Two years later, Liverpool played Chelsea in you know in a second leg semi final in the same circumstances. Liverpool again went through uh, to, to, again to play AC Milan and Athens via a penalty shootout. So, and even if the, you know, the score lines on the night were, were, were identical, 1 0, and in 07, Liverpool had lost the away leg 1 0, the games couldn't have been more different. In 2007, Liverpool, Liverpool battered Chelsea, hit the bar in the second half. Dirk Kite had a perfectly good goal, disallowed in extra time. Chelsea were very, very lucky to get to penalties in 07 because Liverpool were, were much the better side on the night. But in 2005, it was very much like the Alamo. Uh, you know, there was the odd moment here and there. I think towards the end, Digible CC came on as a sub and had a couple of half openings. But it was it was excruciating at times to watch. I mean, to be honest, the only other game I can compare it to was the final against against Tottenham in Madrid last year. Uh, and again, it was a very very early goal. And you know, Tottenham really only kind of I think threatened from maybe the 70, 70 to eighty five minute marks. You know, they certainly weren't half as good a side as Chelsea were, but it was just it it was it was agony to watch. And I, and I remember saying to to a mate at one point during this Chelsea game, and and making reference again in, in Madrid last year, that it was it was almost like it, it felt like physical and mental torture. You know, I remember at various points, kind of like almost just kind of like being down on the haunches or bending over because the anxiety, the tension was such that you actually felt in you know in in physical discomfort. Because the prize was so great, the stakes were so high, and yet one moment of genius or one mistake or or you know, just one fl- freak moment could take could you know could wipe out all our, all our hopes and dreams. I do remember saying to me mate at one point, we we paid good money for this. This is our leisure. This is our entertainment. If people go people go in the cinema or go to the theatre, don't end up feeling this kind of anguish, do they? But of course, you know, <laughs> football is not a normal industry, is it? And and the payoff to that. Is as we'll get to in a minute. You know when the final whistle went. There's no words to describe that. You know, and, and that's the payoff. That's why you go through that that anguish to get to, you know, to get to the end bit. The thing I found surprising looking back, I watched a. a a long sort of extended highlights package before we, we recorded this podcast and looking on the team sheet and everything is the attacking nature of Rafael Benitez's substitutions because whilst the team is sitting deeper and deeper, he takes mm. off Didi Haman and brings on Harry Kuehl. That's still with a good 18 minutes or so left to play. Kuehl, plays, yeah, Kuehl plays in the 10 role and Gerard slots back to, to basically play in a double six with... Igor Bishchan. They weren't. They weren't sort of four, four, two, three, one in, in terms of how you would normally expect it. They were two very much defensive midfielders in in front of the back four, and then the likes of, uh, as you say, Gibriel Cisse. Sorry, had also come on earlier in the piece to replace Milan Barros, and then Anthony. Uh, Antonio Nunes is the final substitution that is made. Whilst for Chelsea, they bring on Robin and uh, Matea Kesman. And the final act from Jose Mourinho, which I still think there was a fair bit of time left on the clock when he did it. Yeah, he did it with 14 minutes to go. Brings on Robert Hoof in place of Jeremy and shoves, <laughs> shoves a young Robert Hoof on as an auxiliary centre-forward. Yeah, well, and, and to be honest, that's I remember yeah, the the Hoof substitution. I think was has been talked of quite a bit since when discussions sometimes take place as to Jose Mourinho's tactical genius. And you know, some people have, have proffered the suggestion that putting a big grok up front, a big centre half up front, isn't necessarily the sign of a a truly special one, as as he liked to refer to himself as. Um, the, the one that surprised me, and I've, I've had no recollection of this, was was cure for Haman. 
with what 18 20 you know, odd minutes to go 18 minutes to go yeah, that is a surprising substitution bearing in mind you know, by this point Chelsea were starting to you know create open you know not not massive clear cut chances but openings Liverpool have put such intensity into the game so you know trying to close every gap block every shot make every tackle you know it takes an awful lot out, it takes an awful lot out of you as a team um, and you know, we were starting to fall deeper and deeper and deeper and obviously the clock's ticking Every time you'd look at the clock, you'd think, bloody hell, is that going backwards? Because it just seems to be going so slowly. But uh, Cissé for Barros is kind of like for like, and I suppose that made sense because they, you know, we, you know, this time Liverpool were playing with one up front and it was basically a bit of a, a lone furrowing job, just kind of running the channels and, and, and it, that absolutely made sense. Um, Antonio Nunes often gets a bit of a bad rap and, and, and um, you know, at the end of the day, he only ended up at Liverpool because... Real Madrid kind of shafted Liverpool and had us over a barrel the previous summer with the Michael Owen deal. And, you know, Liverpool wanted Morientes. Madrid wouldn't let it happen until the January. Um, and, you know, Nunes was kind of like the make weight along with the kind of the eight million the Red, uh, Liverpool got for Owen. But he, he, he had a couple of useful cameos for Liverpool in this season. One I remember in, in the Anfield derby, which I spoke to, which I think Barros got sent off that day. So, you know, and it was, you know, Kale put Liverpool with two up, Kale pulled one back with maybe 15, 20 to go, and it was a bit of a hanging on job. But one in particular I do remember from Nunes in this game, and in the last 10 minutes, there was a couple of occasions when he picked up the ball and just carried it, just carried it 50, 60 yards down the pitch into their half, won the odd corner. I don't think he was ever going to open Chelsea up, but at that time when, you know, it's it's very difficult to describe just how intense those last... 15, 20, 15, 10 minutes were as it was getting closer, the thought of going to a European Cup final, but also the thought that one moment and it's gone. It was it was agony. And but 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 Nunes played his part and kept the ball and, and um you wouldn't say Chelsea had, be, had, had run out of ideas, but I think the fact that Robert Huth was thrown up front as, as an extra centre half, I think shows that you know there was a certain desperation creeping into their game as well because you know, they'd won the title on the, on the Saturday before and they must have been expecting that they'd beaten Liverpool three times this season. This is a Liverpool team that wouldn't finish in the top four. Um, you know, such a good team and a confident team. They surely would have expected that, they, you know, we, we'll just keep going. If we score in the 89th or as it pans out and it could have been the 95th or 96th minute, we'll get the goal. But uh, the fates decided otherwise. Although, you know, as, as we'll get to... The, uh, you know, the the final act was one of those real kind of time stood still, heart in your mouth moments, and even now when you watch it back, it kind of always takes your breath away. Yeah, well, we best get to the final act, the agony, I suppose, and the ecstasy. A long ball forward for for Chelsea falls at the feet eventually of Idegard Johnson. I think ninety five minutes on the clock as this happens, deep in stoppage time. I think it's Hoof, in fact, who actually got the flick on. Falls through for Good Johnson. Dudek has come and had somewhat of a flap at it and it's it's ended yeah. up at the feet of the Icelandic centre-forward. Three Liverpool players on the line and somehow Johnson put, puts it wide of the target. It was it was indescribable, Guy. You know, it was, you know, I was at that end. I was on the cot behind the goal. Comparable, in, in the final, um, I, had a, I had a seat level with the goal line at the end that all the other goals were scored. But it, it level with the goal line at the end where Dudek made that save from Shevchenko. And it it was a similar type of feeling where 
when the ball dropped to Gajonson and when the ball dropped back to Shevchenko after Dudek's initial save from him in the final, it's almost like just time stops still. Your heart stops. A millisecond seems like a year. Um, you know, I think I, I, I'm sure many people you know, close their eyes. I remember just looking down at the goal and just waiting to see the net bulge in front of me, but it didn't. And, you know, the, the wave of, of relief and the release that came from the cop after that, um, you know, there's a, there was a certain nice poetic irony in, in the fact that at the end of the third, you know, the final few minutes, at the end of the first leg, when Zabi Alonso picked up the unwarranted booking that, that ruled him out of the, of the second game at Anfield, it was Ida Johnson who went down like the proverbial sack of potatoes for that yellow card. Football sometimes throws up these these funny little moments of poetic justice. So, you know, th- th- that that was that that was one element to it. But I think once that went wide, you know, th- there's there's wonderful footage on the TV when, you know, I think Liverpool take the time taking the goal kick goes up the other end before the final whistle goes. But as 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 Dudek's readying himself to 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 take the goal kick, the entire ground pretty much is uh in tumult to to the Johnny Johnny Cash Ring of Fire song that really was the soundtrack to that season. I think it was for them away in the October when it kind of first started to take up. It came from absolutely nowhere. I'm pretty sure it had never been sung before. But the whole ground was, you know, twirling the scarves and singing that. And I think there was that realisation that we've done it. You know, it, it's surely that's got to be it. No, because, of course, the um, just to dial back, the, the, you know, another terrifying moment before the Good Johnson moment, the, the Good Johnson chance, was, you know, as, as 89 ticked over to 90 and everyone's looking anxiously to the board. And it went up with six minutes. And everyone was like, where have they got six minutes from? You know, yeah, I'm sure there was, Liverpool would have been doing a bit of gamesmanship, a, a bit of time's wasted here and there. I do seem to remember, I think maybe there was, was there some protest that tried to get on the pitch at one point? Possibly, and, and there might have been some kind of slight delay, but I do remember, I think even on the commentary, even, even on the commentary, I think Clive Hill was going, six minutes, where have they got that from? So, yeah, we get six minutes again, felt like six years. But I think once Good Johnson shot flash wide, there seemed to be this acceptance that that's got to be it now. Come on, ref. Come on, ref. And the ball went down the other end of the field. I think Chelsea had a throw. It was played back to Peter Cech. And as he goes to clear it, the referee blows. And there's a, there's a fantastic video from um, a former, yeah, well, it, it's still a, a Reach PLC colleague of ours now, Dave Cottrell. He's at, he, he now uh, edits the Liverpool programme. At the time, he worked for one of our in-house publications called Liverpool.com. 2005, I think video video camera phones were very, very much in their infancy, but there, yeah, but there were still a few of them around. And anyway, he or friends of his, people close to him in the ground, managed to get a video of him and his friends just at that moment of the final whistle. And we've, we've had it on the Echo website off and on for 15 years, and I'm pretty sure we had it on before the final. And we'll make sure we dig that out for people to see you know, before, you know, ahead of the anniversary of, of this one. And, you know, you know, I think any match-going fan will, you know, will accept that nothing can truly replicate the experience of, of being in the ground, of being in a moment like that. But that particular video is as close as anything I've ever seen. That can, it can't match it, but it can come pretty close to it. And it was just an incredible moment, that knowledge that after 20 years, Liverpool were back in the European Cup final. And um, with a team like this, with which with the greatest respect to them, and they all you know deserve to be lauded as Liverpool heroes till the day they die. 
But you know, you look at some of the, the names that you know that played for Liverpool European Cup winning sides before, and you know this was this was not the most talented side they Liverpool ever had, but they had massive hearts, and and you know they got to this final and won this cup ultimately because of their because of their character, because of their will to win, because of their refusal to accept what the seemingly inevitable was in front of them, which you know at various points during the campaign, most notably in the first half of the final, looked like inevitable defeat. And one man we haven't mentioned through the course of these two games who had that huge backstory going on with Chelsea, with Jose Mourinho, of course, was the Liverpool captain, Steven Gerrard, who at the final whistle, you see how much it means to him. Iconic images of him going off the pitch right in front of the old main stand into that tight corridor, throwing both arms up in the air and obviously the, the, the crowd really sort of responding to that. But this was during that time where it seemed more than, I know you referred to it before as, as paper talk, but it seemed almost like an open secret that the Liverpool captain was somehow going to be persuaded to give up what meant so much to him, his hometown club, his, his home city side, mm. being the captain, to go and join this revolution that was being built at Chelsea to topple Manchester United and reign supreme. And well, we know just how close, of course, he almost came to deciding to, to go and take that path. Well, well, that's right, you know, and to a certain degree, you know, it, it was understandable. You know, it, it, his mate Michael Owen had left the, you know, the summer before because Liverpool were not competing for top honours. You know, Gerrard and, and Owen were elite players that could walk into any team in the world and, and play for them. And there was a danger of fear that, you know, they would not have the careers that their talent uh, warranted because Liverpool as a club was not punching their weight. And, you know, Rafa, you know Rafa, Gerrard was prepared to give... Um, Benitez a chance where whereas whereas Owen wasn't, but you know it was a very up and down season as we've discussed. You know I think it was, you know, Liverpool lost possibly 12, 13, 14 league games, finished fifth, and the whole subject of Gerard's future really was was a was a theme that that ran throughout the course of the season and particularly the European campaign. You know the, the press conference before the crucial final group game against Olympiacos. He was, you know, it, it, again, it was all over the papers and he was asked about it directly and he basically said, well, I don't, I don't want to be waking up in the way for Cup tomorrow. And obviously, you know, when he was the one that fired in that magnificent half volley with four minutes to go against, against Olympiacos, um, you know, I think Martin Tyler even mentions that in, in his commentary. But, it, but again, you know, this whole, the whole topic of, of Gerard's future, um, you know, carried on throughout the spring. I seem to remember um, an interview before the final I think um, it, it might have been shown even in the night of the final. I might not even seen it until I got home from Istanbul. But you know, Gerard and Carragher did like a joint interview in front of uh, the four, as it was, European Cups behind them. And 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 you know, they were, he was basically asked about it. And you know, Carragher kind of put him on the spot. And and you know, there was the line something like, "Who's bigger than Liverpool?" But um, of even and even after, even after Liverpool won the trophy, he was asked about it again, and he said something like, "Well, how can I leave after this?" As we know, then three or four weeks later, he did nearly leave <coughs> because there was kind of like a uh, a miscommunication or kind of like you know, the, the club and the, and, and the player on different pages. Thankfully, he did end up staying and, and had, you know, a, a, one of the great Liverpool careers. And it, it, I suppose there's a parallel maybe with Alan Shearer in that, you know, Shearer could have gone to Man United and won loads of, loads of trophies. Um, Gerald could have gone to Chelsea or Real Madrid or, any, or anyone and won loads of trophies. But he is loved and will always be loved on Merseyside in the same way that Shearer will always be revered on Tyneside. 
because of the fact that they gave everything to the to the club that they loved. And, you know, something like that's priceless. I mean, you know, thankfully, Stevie did get at least a few big trophies to, you know, to, to at least have some kind of justification for it. You know, Alan Shearer, I don't think, ever ever, ever won anything for Newcastle, did he? He won a league winner's medal at Blackburn before he went there. But, you know, for, 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 for both of them, and I think for, particularly for Gerard, if, if, if you get to play for, for, your, for your boyhood team and your name and your kid's name and your grandparents, you know, your grandkids... They, they, they will carry the legacy of that and, and, and the legacy of that name. And I think that's something that I'm sure that, that Stephen's very proud of. But I'm, just, I'm so delighted for him that he did have these kind of amazing experiences. Obviously, the FA Cup final the following year, late, the following year when he, he wrote his name all over it again. Um, but yeah, the, the, it was just one of those incredible ironies that, you know, Gerard and Chelsea, this kind of, you know, this wannabe marriage that so many people were pushing for as the season went on. It was never to be, and, and yet there were various points over the course of this season when it seemed like almost inevitab- an inevitability, but fate decided otherwise. Yeah, as you say, Stephen Gerrard, synonymous with Liverpool, always will be and always has been, and this, of course, a campaign which helped write that folklore, which he is, of course, so much revered for. Dan, We've reached the end of the game. Of course, we've not reached the end of the series. The big one still to come, but that game, the final one at Anfield, what a send-off it was for the Reds before they went to Istanbul. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, it, there was there was what the, the final league game was the following Sunday against Aston Villa, so there was you know one more one more Anfield match before before we all trotted off to Turkey. And it was it was that was a great day. Jibble uh, Cisse started his first game, I think, since his broken leg against Blackburn in the October. Scored twice, and we've been lucky. Really, there's been three or four occasions now in the last fifteen years where we, you know, the final final home game of the season can be you know can be a real kind of difference of feeling. Sometimes you know at the end of a, at the end of a bad season, you almost can't wait to get out of the place, and there's a feeling of you know. Stagnation and and you know the one that sticks out in the mind was the the end of the 2009-10 season when Liverpool lost to Chelsea that virtually handed the um handed them the title and also it was the, it, it was Rafa Benitez's last match last match at manager uh, last match at Anfield as manager of Liverpool and it was very sad because you could feel that the, the writing was on the wall but this particular Villa game um the Brighton game uh couple of seasons ago and, and even Wolves last year even though obviously there was the kind of there was the dual aspect of the Premier League title race that day it's a lovely feeling when every you know the weather's usually great everyone's in shirt sleeves but everyone's talking to each other about their plans how you get in there where you stay and how you fix the tickets that kind of thing so it, it's you know these are I don't think we should ever take for granted you know how spoiled we've been to have so many of these kind of occasions most football fans would be lucky to have one of them in a lifetime and we you know for us it always seems to happen on a twice a decade basis and I think it's maybe what's happening at the moment when obviously you know, we're in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic we've been deprived of football for six weeks we don't know it, it could be for months longer yet we don't know but maybe, maybe maybe these kind of things happen for maybe just to remind us to appreciate the special times that we get because nothing's guaranteed you don't know when the next one's going to be um, but you know 2000, 2005 was special because particularly for the European Cup it was the first of a new generation it was out the blue Bio Seven, and you know, and the, some of the ones that came afterwards. There's maybe more of an expectation of it, 
But in 2005, it was out of nowhere. Nobody saw that coming, even at Christmas time, I don't think. So I think, you know, it's 15 years on now. I think in 55, 0 years, we'll still be talking. And, and if we can still talk by that stage, we'll be old men by then or older men. <clears throat> it will always be revered and, and, and looked upon as one of Liverpool's greatest, greatest areas. Yeah, I suppose very fittingly put right at the end there, Dan. Now more than ever, never to to take instances like this for granted, of course. We'll, we'll be back for the final, of course, as AC Milan were the side that Liverpool faced in that final in Istanbul, their first European Cup final for 20 years. Well, we will be back with the uh, the final instalment of the road to Istanbul then. But from, from us, myself, Guy Clark, and, and Dan Kay here from the Liverpool Echo, keep yourselves safe and well. And thanks for your time and your company here on the road to Istanbul. But until next time, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.